Chapter sixty nine, part two of the history of the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, volume six. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Christine. The History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume 6, by Edward Gibbon. Chapter 69, Part 2. Yet the courage of Arnold was not devoid of discretion. He was protected, and had perhaps been invited by the nobles and people, and in the service of freedom his eloquence thundered o'er the seven hills. Blending in the same discourse the texts of Levi and St. Paul, uniting the motives of gospel and of classic enthusiasm, he admonished the Romans, how strangely their patience and the vices of the clergy had degenerated from the primitive times of the church and the city. He exhorted them to assert the inalienable rights of men and Christians, to restore the laws and magistrates of the Republic, to respect the name of the Emperor, but to confine their shepherd to the spiritual government of his flock. Nor could his spiritual government escape the centre and control of the Reformer, and the inferior clergy were taught by his lessons to resist the cardinals, who had usurped a despotic command over the twenty-eight regions or parishes of Rome. The revolution was not accomplished without rapine and violence. The diffusion of blood and the demolition of houses, the victorious faction was enriched with the spoils of the clergy and the adverse nobles. Arnold of Brescia enjoyed, or deplored, the effects of his mission. His reign continued above ten years, while two popes, Innocent II and Anastasius IV, either trembled in the Vatican or wandered as exiles in the adjacent cities. They were succeeded by a more vigorous and fortunate pontiff, Adrian IV, the only Englishman who has ascended the throne of St. Peter, and whose merit emerged from the mean condition of a monk, and almost a beggar, in the monastery of St. Albans. On the first provocation of a cardinal killed or wounded in the streets, he cast an interdict on the guilty people, and from Christmas to Easter, Rome was deprived of the real or imaginary comforts of religious worship. The Romans had despised their temporal prince. They submitted with grief and terror to the censures of their spiritual father. Their guilt was expiated by penance, and the banishment of the seditious preacher was the price of their absolution. But the revenge of Adrian was yet unsatisfied, and the approaching coronation of Frederick Barbarossa was fatal to the bold reformer, who had offended, though not in an equal degree, the heads of the church and state. In their interview at Viterbo, the Pope represented to the Emperor the furious, ungovernable spirit of the Romans, the insults, the injuries, the fears, to which his person and his clergy were continually exposed, and the pernicious tendency of the heresy of Arnold, which must subvert the principles of civil, as well as ecclesiastical subordination. Frederick was convinced by these arguments, or tempted by the desire of the imperial crown, in the balance of ambition, the innocence of or life of an individual is of small account, and their common enemy was sacrificed to a moment of political concord. After his retreat from Rome, Arnold had been protected by the Viscounts of Campania, from whom he was extorted by the power of Caesar. 
the prefect of the city pronounced his sentence. The martyr of freedom was burned alive in the presence of a careless and ungrateful people, and his ashes were cast into the Tiber, lest the heretics should collect and worship the relics of their master. The clergy triumphed in his death. With his ashes his sect was dispersed. His memory still lived in the minds of the Romans. From his school they had probably derived a new article of faith, that the metropolis of the Catholic Church is exempt from the penalties of excommunication and interdict. Their bishops might argue that the supreme jurisdiction which they exercised over kings and nations more especially embraced the city and diocese of the prince of the apostles. But they preached to the winds, and the same principle that weakens the effect must temper the abuse of the thunders of the Vatican. The love of ancient freedom has encouraged a belief that as early as the tenth century, in their first struggles against the Saxon Ottos, the commonwealth was vindicated and restored by the senate and people of Rome. The two consuls were annually elected among the nobles, and that ten or twelve plebeian magistrates revived the name and office of the tribunes of the commons. But this venerable structure disappears before the light of criticism. In the darkness of the Middle Ages, the appellations of senators, of consuls, of the sons of consuls, may sometimes be discovered. They were bestowed by the emperors, or assumed by the most powerful citizens, to denote their rank, their honors, and perhaps the claim of a pure and patrician descent. But they float on the surface, without a series or a substance, the titles of men, not the orders of government. And it is only from the year of Christ, 1144, that the establishment of the Senate is dated, as a glorious era in the acts of the city. A new constitution was hastily framed by private ambition or popular enthusiasm. Nor could Rome, in the twelfth century, produce an antiquary to explain, or a legislator to restore, the harmony and proportions of the ancient model. The assembly of a free, of an armed people, will ever speak in loud and weighty acclamations, but the regular distribution of the fifty-five tribes, the nice balance of the wealth and numbers of the centuries, the debates of the adverse orators, and the slow operations of votes and ballots, could not easily be adapted by a blind multitude, ignorant of the arts, and insensible of the benefits of legal government. It was proposed by Arnold to revive and discriminate the equestrian order, but what could be the motive or measure of such distinction? The pecuniary qualification of the knights must have been reduced to the poverty of the times. Those times no longer required their civil functions of judges and farmers of the revenue, and their primitive duty, their military service on horseback, was more nobly supplied by feudal tenures and the spirit of chivalry. The jurisprudence of the Republic was useless and unknown, the nations and families of Italy, who lived under the Roman and barbaric laws, were insensibly mingled in a common mass, and some faint tradition, some imperfect fragments, preserved the memory of the Code and Pandects of Justinian. With their liberty the Romans might doubtless have restored the appellation and office of consuls. Had they not disdained a title so promiscuously adopted in the Italian cities, that it has finally settled on the humble station 
of the agents of commerce in a foreign land. But the rights of the tribunes, the formidable word that arrested the public consuls, suppose or must produce a legitimate democracy. The old patricians were the subjects, the modern barons the tyrants of the state, nor would the enemies of peace and order, who insulted the vicar of Christ, have long respected the unarmed sanctity of a plebeian magistrate. In the revolution of the twelfth century, which gave a new existence and era to Rome, we may observe the real and important events that marked or confirmed her political independence. First, the Capitolian Hill, one of her seven eminences, is about four hundred yards in length and two hundred in breadth. A flight of hundred steps led to the summit of the Tarpeian Rock, and far steeper was the ascent before the declivities had been smoothed and the precipices built by the ruins of fallen edifices. From the earliest ages the capital had been used as a temple in peace, a fortress in war. After the loss of the city it maintained a siege against the victorious Gauls, and the sanctuary of the empire was occupied, assaulted and burned, in the civil wars of Vitellus and Vespasian. The temples of Jupiter and his kindred deities had crumbled into dust. Their place was supplied by monasteries and houses, and the solid walls, the long and shelving porticos, were decayed or ruined by the lapse of time. It was the first act of the Romans, an act of freedom, to restore the strength, though not the beauty, of the capital, to fortify the seat of their arms and councils, and as often as they ascended the hill, the coldest minds must have glowed with the remembrance of their ancestors. Second, the first Caesars had been invested with the exclusive coinage of the gold and silver. To the Senate they abandoned the baser metal of bronze or copper. The emblems and legions were inscribed on a more ample field by the genius of flattery, and the prince was relieved from the care of celebrating his own virtues. The successors of Diocletian despised even the flattery of the Senate, their royal officers at Rome, and in the provinces, assumed the sole direction of the mint, and the same prerogative was inherited by the Gothic kings of Italy, and the long series of the Greek, the French, and the German dynasties. After an abdication of eight hundred years, the Roman Senate asserted this honorable and lucrative privilege, which was tacitly renounced by the popes, from Pascal II to the establishment of the residence beyond the Alps. Some of these republican coins of the twelfth and thirteenth centuries are shown in the cabinets of the curious. On one of these, a gold medal, Christ is depictured holding in his left hand a book with this inscription, The Bow of the Roman Senate and People, Rome the Capital of the World. On the reverse, St. Peter, delivering a banner to a kneeling senator in his cap and gown, with the name and arms of his family impressed on a shield. Third, with the empire, the prefect of the city had declined to a municipal officer, yet he still exercised in the last appeal the civil and criminal jurisdiction, and a drawn sword, which he received from the successors of Otho, was the mode of his investiture, and the emblem of his functions. The dignity was confined to the noble families of Rome. The choice of the people was ratified by the Pope, 
but a triple oath of fidelity must have often embarrassed the prefect in the conflict of adverse duties. A servant in whom they possessed but a third share was dismissed by the independent Romans. In his place they elected a patrician, but this title, which Charlemagne had not disdained, was too lofty for a citizen or a subject, and, after the first fervor or rebellion, they consented without reluctance to the restoration of the prefect. About fifty years after this event, Innocent III, the most ambitious, or at least the most fortunate, of the pontiffs, delivered the Romans and himself from this badge of foreign dominion. He invested the prefect with a banner instead of a sword, and absolved him from all dependence of oaths or service to the German emperors. In his place an ecclesiastical, a present or future cardinal, was named by the Pope to the civil government of Rome, but his jurisdiction has been reduced to a narrow compass, and in the days of freedom the right or exercise was derived from the Senate and people. 4. After the revival of the Senate, the conscript fathers, if I may use the expression, were invested with the legislative and executive power, but their views seldom reached beyond the present day, and that day was most frequently disturbed by violence and tumult. In its utmost plenitude, the order or assembly consisted of fifty-six senators, the most eminent of whom were distinguished by the title of councillors. They were nominated, perhaps annually, by the people, and a previous choice of their electors, ten persons in each region, or parish, might afford a basis for a free and permanent constitution. The popes, who in this tempest submitted rather to bend than to break, confirmed by treaty the establishment and privileges of the Senate, and expected from time, peace, and religion the restoration of their government. The motives of public and private interest might sometimes draw from the Romans an occasional and temporary sacrifice of their claims, and they renewed their oath of allegiance to the successor of St. Peter and Constantine, the lawful head of the Church and the Republic. The union and vigor of a public council was dissolved in a lawless city, and the Romans soon adopted a more strong and simple mode of administration. They condensed the name and authority of the Senate in a single magistrate, or two colleagues, and as they were changed at the end of a year, or of six months, the greatness of the trust was compensated by the shortness of the term. But in this transient reign, the senators of Rome indulged their avarice and ambition. Their justice was perverted by the interest of their family and faction, and as they punished only their enemies, they were obeyed only by their adherents. Anarchy, no longer tempered by the pastoral care of their bishop, admonished the Romans that they were incapable of governing themselves, and they sought abroad those blessings which they were hopeless of finding at home. In the same age, and from the same motives, most of the Italian republics were prompted to embrace a measure, which, however strange it may seem, was adapted to their situation, and productive of the most salutary effects. They choose, in some foreign but friendly city, an impartial magistrate of noble birth, and unblemished character, a soldier and a statesman, recommended by the voice of fame and his country, to whom they delegated for a time the supreme administration of peace and war. 
The compact between the governor and the governed was sealed with oaths and subscriptions, and the duration of his power, the measure of his stipend, the nature of their mutual obligations, were defined with scrupulous precision. They swore to obey him as their lawful superior. He pledged his faith to unite the indifference of a stranger with the zeal of a patriot. At his choice, four or six knights and civilians, his assessors in arms and justice, attended the Podesta, who maintained at his own expense a decent retinue of servants and horses, his wife, his son, his brother, who might be as the affections of the judge, were left behind. During the exercise of his office he was not permitted to purchase land, to contract an alliance, or even to accept an invitation in the house of a citizen. Nor could he honorably depart till he had satisfied the complaints that might be urged against his government. End of chapter 69, part 2